Amen. Y'all can be seated. Um, again, because I know some people have come in in the last few songs. Uh, my name is Travis. It is good to be with you this evening. Uh, welcome to the College and Career Ministry here at Baylife. And as I said before, we are actually stepping into uh, what's going to be really our last series for the year. And so these last four weeks leading up to Christmas will be devoted to this Advent series. Now, I recognize that the term Advent is something that many of you have maybe heard before. Uh, Maybe you've gone to Starbucks and seen kind of the Advent calendar that they sell there, or uh, maybe you've seen the Advent wreaths that they sell at like craft stores or maybe in Christian bookstores where I know some of us work there, and so you've seen those things. And then I recognize some of us have maybe grown up in more formal Christian traditions. Maybe you've grown up in the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or the Orthodox Church or the Lutheran Church, where Advent is something that is celebrated every single year. But many of us really only know that word. We don't know what it means, and we don't know why it's worth Marking, And so I just want to kind of make you aware that much of tonight is going to be me explaining what Advent is and why we are marking it for the second year in a row. And then we'll spend a little bit of time at the end in the 25th Psalm, which is what John just read for us. So, pretty much from the point that God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, you can find the account of that in the book of Exodus, God gave them certain days and seasons that he commanded them to mark consistently and faithfully year in and year out. And so they had festivals and they had holy days and they had harvest and new moon celebrations and things like that. And they actually had feast days, which I would love for that to be a thing in Christianity again. (laughs) Feast days sound awesome. And if we can sit at a banquet with like a cornucopia and raise our goblets, that would be the coolest thing in the whole world. But, but Israel marked these feast days, and they marked these holy days and these holidays. And these were things that they didn't just kind of come up with, but really after being led out of Egypt, God gave it to Israel. Some of them you might be familiar with. There are holy days such as Pentecost. That didn't just start with Christians. Uh, everybody was in Jerusalem celebrating something God had told Israel to celebrate when the Holy Spirit was poured out. You might recognize the Day of Atonement, uh, which is Yom Kippur, I believe. That was a day that God said, I need you to mark this as the day where we uh, recognize that I'm forgiving the sins of the nation. The one that people are most familiar with is probably Passover. And God says, year in and year out, no matter what country you're in, whether it is in your homeland of Israel in Jerusalem, or whether you are in far-off countries, I need you to mark this day. I need you to celebrate it. And it wasn't just because Israel needed a break. It wasn't just like work hard, play harder, right? It wasn't just like, I mean, it's so hard, I don't know, raising cattle and stuff. You guys, you guys need to hang out and eat some turkey legs. No, the, the reasoning behind it, behind all of these days, was that God was saying, I need you to remember what I've done. And I need you to have a platform from which to remind your children of what I've done. So when you celebrate... The Passover, this is to teach your children about what I did in Egypt in delivering you. When you celebrate the Passover, it's for you to remember what I have done in history. These days, these seasons, these festivals, these holy days, these celebrations, they are to mark 
the deeds of God in history so that throughout our year, or throughout their year rather, they are reminded of the things that God has done and continues to do. So from a very early point in Christian history, uh, first or second century really, Christians started taking very seriously what Jesus says about himself in the book of Revelation. He says, I am the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And they started saying, well, so, so we realize Jesus is Lord of creation, but it seems like Jesus is actually Lord of history too. If Jesus is the beginning and the end and all of history is contained within him, then what would it mean for us as Christians to not just honor him as Lord of creation, but to pattern our time and our seasons around him as well? What would it look like for us to mark the rhythms of our life around him? What would it look like for the life and the work of Jesus to have touching points not just in our worship services, but in our time together throughout the year. And so Christians looked back and said, this is what God did in Israel, is that he gave them these ways to remember what he had done. I wonder if it would be worthwhile for us to look at our year and set aside different seasons and times where we can remember what Jesus has done and what God has accomplished through him. And so this idea of the Christian year was born. This idea that Jesus is so profound that not even time escapes his influence. In fact, you might have been familiar with some of the products of this thinking because we date history in B.C. and A.D. Because time itself is divided by the person of Jesus. Now, there is common era and before the common era, which is kind of taught in history classes today. But the only thing they changed were the words. The common era still starts at Jesus' birth, which is kind of funny to me. Um, And so Christians started thinking about this, and so they said, okay, so what are the important things that happened in Jesus' life that we can set aside time to remember throughout our year? And they came up with about six or seven different important things. The beginning of the Christian year is what they call it, uh, is Advent itself. And in Advent, we remember what it was like to wait for the coming of the Messiah. We remember the cries of the people of Israel from the garden to Egypt to the Exodus to Canaan to the exile, the prophets and the Psalms crying out for redemption, waiting for a Messiah. We mark their anticipation. And the next season that the Christians, early Christians said we ought to mark is Christmas, that after all of these years of crying out for a redeemer, God himself puts on flesh and takes the form of a child in Jesus Christ. And so they marked Advent as the waiting and Christmas as the celebrating. And here's something kind of interesting. You've probably heard the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, or you've watched like the Hallmark movie marathons on The Twelve Days of Christmas. Uh, Don't tell me if you have, I would be embarrassed for you. But, But The Twelve Days of Christmas is not just something that makes for a catchy song, but actually Christians felt like what happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago was so important that one day was not enough to celebrate the fullness of it. And so for many Christians, Christmas doesn't happen on the 25th and end at midnight that evening. But Christmas is celebrated for 12 days straight. Now that's not to say that they get presents for 12 days straight, right? Or everybody would be broke and kids would be spoiled rotten. But the celebration of what happened 
in Bethlehem in the coming of the Son of God is celebrated for a long period of time into the new year. And so it starts with Advent and moves to Christmas. The next season is called Epiphany. And Epiphany is meant to mark two actual events in Jesus' life. The first is the wise men discerning through the star that the Messiah had been born. It's this Epiphany. Oh my gosh, the Messiah's here. Uh, The second thing it's meant to mark is Jesus turning water into wine and beginning his ministry. There's this epiphany. Oh, there's something special about this fellow. I don't know anyone that can turn water into wine. And so Christians started to mark that, and then epiphany tumbles into Lent, which is meant to mark the period in Jesus' life where he spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and being tempted. And so many Christians fast for 40 days as a sign of solidarity with Christ, And so they mark that season of Jesus' life, and Lent stumbles onward into a week that contains what is called the Great Tridoom, which sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. It sounds like the name for an orc. But it's actually a series of things marked in Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter. So the Great Tridoom, or Tridum, or however you might pronounce it, starts with Maundy Thursday, the day that Jesus was betrayed. And that is marked as this is the day that Christ was delivered over into the hands of sinners. It moves on to Good Friday, the day that Jesus died, and Christians mark that and they remember it. And then it tumbles into what is called Holy Saturday, where we remember the fear of the apostles as they waited for God to move and vindicate Christ in the resurrection. And after this season, we move to Easter. Everybody knows what Easter is about Uh, After being betrayed, after being crucified, after dying, Jesus is raised on Easter Sunday. I was raised in a kind of Greek home. Uh, By kind of Greek, I mean my grandma is like full-on Greek, so I call her Yaya, and her real name is Artemisia Demopoulos, so she's that Greek. She's not like poser Greek, she's real Greek. And so by by extension, uh, my mom has some Greek traditions, and one of the traditions in during the Easter season is on Easter morning, my mom would always wake us up as kids by saying Christos Anesti, which means Christ is risen. And then the response that we are supposed to give, if you know we're not little heretics and hellions running around, um, is Alithos Anesti, Christ is risen indeed. And this was a, a saying in the Greek church. And so that's what Easter marks. Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. Alithos Anesti, truly He is risen, and Easter moves into what is called the season of Pentecost, where we mark Christ's ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and by the time that's over, you get a summer break, and you fall right back into Advent. And so here's the the purpose of this, and this is why Christians for thousands of years have ordered their churches around the church year because there is not a single season at which Christians are not thinking about the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus. There's not a single season where there are not signs and reminders of what Jesus has done. So I think the Christian year is a good thing. I think it is a gift to us in many ways. And so we are committing ourselves for the next four weeks to celebrate one of those seasons. It's a season called Advent. Now, there's some misunderstanding, I think, among people about what Advent is. There is a temptation among us to think that Advent is a four-week Christmas celebration. 
And that is simply not the case. Uh, If you were taking notes, uh, Advent comes before Christmas. Christmas is the Christmas celebration. Advent is something else. What Advent is, is a looking back and a looking forward. It's a looking back at the people of Israel who were longing and hoping for a deliverer. Praying that God would break through into the humdrum, uh, despairing and disparaging circumstances of their life. They were longing for God to move. And we look back at that and we say, we as Christians can empathize with that. Because they longed and they waited and they prayed for God to break through. And he did so in Jesus. And we now look at the state of our world and we long for God to break through and we trust that he'll do it again in the second coming. And so Advent, a word which means coming or the appearance or revealing of, is a time for us to learn how to wait well. It's a time for us to look at how the people of God have waited in the past and it's time for us to look at how, based on their model, we can wait for the return of our Lord. Stephen Stow, who is, uh, he actually leads one of our life groups with his wife, Wendy, but he also works kind of as the graphics coordinator here at the church, and I think I just got his job title wrong, so I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Um, But he was asking me, you know, what's coming down the pipeline at the college and career ministry? And I said, well, we're, we're doing four weeks of Advent. And he said, oh, that sounds wonderful. What's that? And so I had to kind of take a second and distill it down and go, okay, so what, what really is it? What is the heart behind this season that it's worth us kind of committing ourselves to? And I've kind of alluded to this, but let me make it explicit. There's two things that Advent is meant to teach us. One is how to wait. Two is how to live in hope. And these are things profoundly counterintuitive to what we experience in our day-to-day lives. I remember watching a YouTube video, and in the YouTube video, it was, there was an advertisement before where they were trying to sell cell phones. And specifically a cell phone plan with this really awesome, great data plan. And so they're interviewing these random people on the street. And it was probably staged. I don't trust anything. Uh, but, but it looked like it was random street interviews. And they're saying, what don't you like about your phone? And people are saying, oh, my gosh, I hate how it takes 30 seconds for a YouTube video to load. Oh, my gosh, I hate that it takes a whole minute for my emails to load. Oh, my gosh, I hate the fact that it takes 45 seconds for my phone to boot up. And really, it's just an exercise in impatience. Because I think most of us were around to remember what the dial-up tone sounded like. (laughs) Maybe we weren't around for very long. and, And there might even be some of us who didn't have Internet at some point in our lives. But as society moves faster and faster and faster, we grow more and more and more impatient. But the Christian life is not about immediate gratification. It is about faithfully waiting. Throughout history, God has told his people, wait. And so we need to learn how to wait well. That's what Advent is meant to teach us. Now, um, It's not just in our cell phones and our internet connection that we find ourselves struggling to wait, but it's especially in the midst of our pain that waiting becomes painful itself. 
we almost want to shake our fists at the heavens with Job and say, why won't you do something? When I first took over this ministry, I went through this very strange season of anxiety and depression, almost is what I would describe it as, and I've never experienced anything like that before. And I remember sitting at the table in my apartment in Seminole Heights with my wonderful cat and and just, just praying and pleading with God, God, I cannot do the job you've given me if this is the position that you leave me and I need you to do something. And as clearly as I have ever heard God speak and I didn't hear a voice from heaven and there wasn't like a light coming from the roof of my apartment, but very, very clearly, I heard God say, not yet, you need to wait. And for me in the middle of my pain, that was frustrating But a year and a half later, God has taught me through that how to wait well. And my hope is that in this season of Advent, he would teach all of us to wait. The gospel actually doesn't come immediately after the fall. Adam sins, and then you have in chapter 3 something called the Proto-Evangelion, which is where God promises that there will come somebody from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and undo what is done. But he doesn't say, Adam, I'll fix this tomorrow. It's cool. Rest easy. But it moves on from Adam to Abraham. And it moves on from Abraham to Joseph. And it moves on from Joseph to Moses. And it moves from Moses to the judges. And it moves from the judges to the kings. And from the kings to the prophets. And all of them are saying, God, do something. And God says, wait. And Paul says, in the fullness of time, when the time was right, God spoke through his son. So we need to learn to wait. Advent is designed to do that for us. The second thing that it teaches us how to do is to hope. Uh, There is a movie that's based on a book. I realize, Rich has brought this up before, but movie illustrations are just kind of like my go-to thing, and I don't, it's just because I watch a lot of TV, I guess. Um, Not that that's a good thing, Uh, but there's a, a film called 16 Years of Alcohol, which sounds super fun and cheery, doesn't it? It's not fun or cheery. And it is based on a series of poems that the director wrote, a book that was put out by the same title. And it's about his brother. So a movie about a book about the author's brother. And his brother in the 60s was a kind of pioneer in the skinhead movement and a raging alcoholic for 16 years. And the poems are about the experience of the older brother watching the younger brother fall apart and finally find redemption through recovery. And in the beginning, one of the first few books, or one of the first few poems, is about hope. And in it, he says, hope is a funny thing. It is a currency for those who are losing. The more familiar you are with hope, the less beautiful it becomes. Now, I don't agree with the last line, but I think the first two lines are profound. Because the reality is that Adam had no need of hope because there was no pain. And in the new heavens and the new earth, you and I as Christians will have no need of hope because Christ will have set things right. Hope is not for Eden and hope is not for paradise and the restored kingdom of God. Hope is for people living in the shadow of Paris shootings and bombings. Hope is for people who live in the shadow of Columbine. Hope is for people who live in the shadow of the atom bomb. Hope is for people who live in the grips of racial division and prejudice that are tearing our country apart. Hope is for us now. And we desperately need to learn what it means to live with hope. 
Because if there's anything that the Christian should have, it's hope. A Harvard professor, prominent atheist, uh, about, about history, he said, it's full of sound and fury, but signifies nothing. It begins in chaos, it ends in chaos, there's no purpose behind it, and that is the exact opposite of what we believe. History is not chaos, but it has begun in Christ the Alpha, and it will end in Christ our hope, the Omega. And so we have to learn to live in the midst of our pain, not as those who are without hope. And Advent teaches us to live with hope. So, my hope is that we learn to wait well, and my hope is that we learn to hope. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at David's waiting in Psalms 25, which John read for us earlier. Let me read for you. We'll only be in the first five verses of this text. And it says this, Psalms 25, of David, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let, me, let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are, who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Now, the Psalms sometimes are really instructive for us because we can read it and there's a little bit of a clue as to where David is in his life when he's writing it. This is not the case with the 25th Psalm. The only context clues that we have about where David is is that he finds himself waiting on God to do something. He's worried that he will be put to shame. He's worried that his enemies will exult or gloat over him. And he is waiting for God to deliver on the hope that he has promised. And there's two things as we kind of are wrapping our minds around Advent in this text and kind of anticipating what God's going to do in the next few weeks. There's two things that David kind of teaches us about how we wait and how we wait with hope. The first three verses, David begins in this way. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I put my trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. This idea of lifting up our souls to God. That's not some abstract kind of theological concept where you sit with your legs crossed in the lotus position and om. Really what he's talking about is a reality that happens when we enter into prayer. To lift your soul up to God, actually the early Christians used this as a call to worship. It would say, lift up your hearts. And that was the indicator in the service that Christians knew this was their opportunity to pray. So David says, I find myself in the middle of pain. I find myself in the middle of suffering. I find myself waiting. How is it that I'm going to wait well, he's going to wait in prayerfulness by lifting up his soul to God. Now, this is a Sunday school answer, right? I, I taught middle school and high school small groups for a long time, and I always told them, if you want to get an answer right in a small group and you answer Jesus, the Bible, or pray, you have like a 50% chance of getting it. In the same way that if you don't know the answer on the SAT, you always guess C, because I guess that's just the one that's almost always right. That's what they told me. It's probably why I didn't do well on the SAT. Um, <laughs> But, 
But the reality is this, that as cliche and as constantly beat to death as this idea is, the reality is the only way that you will wait well is if you wait in the presence of God. The only way that you will wait well is if you do, in fact, lift up your soul to the Lord. This lifting up of your soul, this are, these are not petty, childish prayers. These are not throw one up to the good Lord on your way to school. Hey, God, help me have a good day. These are deep, weighty, lengthy prayers. David is not playing games. David finds himself in the middle of pain. And he says, I'm going to lift up my very soul to you. I'm going to commit myself to praying fervently. I would venture to say that in the middle of this, David wasn't the only person praying for the situation either because as much as there is value in you going to God in prayer as you try to wait well for whatever he has for you, there is great value in you having brothers and sisters who will do the same thing for you. And will say to you, hey, I know that you're waiting on an answer about these test results. And I know that you're hoping that God is going to move or I know that you're really waiting on that uh, that person that God is going to bring into your life so that you can step into the marriage covenant or I know that you're really waiting on that job so you can finally start paying your bills and I just want you to know I'm lifting you up even as you go before the Lord in prayer. I am praying for you. So David says as he waits that he's going to lift up his soul to the Lord. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, no one, indeed none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. One of the interesting things that a lot of the commentators on this text kind of draw out is they say half of this seems like David praying and the other half of this seems like David talking to himself. And here's what I mean by that. Um, When I took being in shape a lot more seriously than I do now, and I wasn't really hoping for feast days to make a comeback, um, I actually put post-it notes throughout my apartment And they said things that if you read them, they would shock you. It was things like, you're fat and ugly, don't eat that cheeseburger. And and, nobody likes you, make sure you drink your gallon of water. I mean, they they were mean things, and they were kind of funny to me. But my sense of humor is really dark, and so people people didn't find it funny. Um, But what I was doing here was leveling with myself. What I was doing here was kind of what you see in some of the the movies about the nerd that makes the turnaround where he looks himself in the mirror and he goes, you're going to be that popular person or whatever. And what it almost seems like David is doing is, is even as he's praying, even as he's lifting up his soul to the Lord, he's reminding himself of things that he knows are true, but he is tempted to forget He is reminding himself, even as I wait, it's almost as if he's looking at himself and he's saying, David, remember, none who wait for the Lord will be put to shame. David, remember, the people who will be put to shame are are the wantonly treacherous. David is preaching to himself. He is reminding himself of things that he once believed were true, but his circumstances are tempting him to forget. And so if you find yourself in a position of waiting, I think what David would say to you is first that you should lift up your soul to the Lord in prayer, but second that you need to preach to yourself the things that you know are true, but that you're tempted to forget. If you want to wait well, you need to hold out the promises of God in front of yourself 
and force yourself to look at them every day and remember that they are true no matter how difficult your circumstances become. So this is kind of the first segment of how David is waiting and hoping well. Verse 4 and 5, he says this, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So David repeats, I'm waiting for you all the day long. But here's the interesting thing about how David waits. David doesn't wait passively. He actually asks God to do things, to teach him, to grow him, to shape him, to mold him, even as he waits. There is this very strange thing that happens with us. When we find out that we are waiting, we kind of just throw up our hands and we twiddle our thumbs. We think, well, I've done all I can. Now it's just time to wait. But David is not committed to that. David says, I'm waiting and I'm trusting and I'm hoping and I'm praying, but I'm not sitting and doing nothing while I wait. God, I want you in my waiting to teach me your ways, to teach me your laws, to teach me your statutes. So if you find yourself waiting right now for God to move, whether it's to bring the person into your life that you would marry, whether it's to uh, bring to you a job that will help you pay your bills, whether you are waiting for a pain that you feel will never go away to finally be erased, can I plead with you not to wait passively? There's an event in the history of this country called the Great Disappointment, which, of course, I would use as an illustration because I'm just a little ray of sunshine. Um, it's called the Great Disappointment, and it was, uh, it was a period in our nation's history where uh, a couple people figured out or thought they'd figured out the date of the second coming of Jesus, which is always a certain sign that Jesus will not come back on that day. <laughs> And they convinced a lot of other people they'd figured out the date. And so all of these people sold everything they had, and they went and they stood on the hills, and they waited. But here's the crazy thing, that when Jesus ascends into heaven, the apostles are kind of staring with their mouths open going, oh my gosh, what just happened? And the angels appear to him and go, what are you doing standing still? Do stuff. You have stuff to do. I know you're waiting for him to return, but there are things to do in the meantime. I know you're waiting for God to move, but we don't wait passively. We wait actively. The reading from scripture that will kind of accompany the end of our service tonight talks about the second coming of Jesus, and it warns us not to be found asleep. And David is committed to waiting, but in his waiting, he wants God to teach him. He wants God to lead him in truth, to instruct him. He is committed to waiting actively. So if you find yourself waiting on a spouse, this is your time to grow in godliness and not twiddle your thumbs until your Eve or your Adam shows up. This is your time to do something. If you find yourself without a job, then you have a whole lot of free time to give to the church, to ministry to the poor, to praying for your friends. As you wait and as you hope for God to move, it is not time for you to kick the dirt and go, shucks, I hope something happens soon. God has given you this time to do something. If you find yourself with a lot of free time, just waiting for something to occupy that, listen, that is not time for you to sit around and do nothing. You have a kingdom to build by the grace of God and his spirit. And so even as we find ourselves waiting, 
and even as we find ourselves hoping. David would commend these two things to us. He would say we wait in prayer. As we wait, we remind ourselves that God fulfills his promises no matter how dark the circumstance. And we don't wait as lazy people, but we wait actively. I am very much looking forward to these next three weeks as we walk through Scripture, as we look at how the people of God waited and how God made good on his promise in Jesus, and as we think about how we wait now for Christ's return, and we trust that he'll deliver again. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and Lord, we come before you asking that you would teach us patience. Lord, that you would just remind us of the need to wait patiently on you. David says later, I waited patiently on the Lord and he inclined his ear towards me and he heard my cry. Father, I pray that we would be patient waiters, but we would not simply wait. We would be active. And God, that we would realize uh, that we have been born into a living hope in the gospel of Jesus. And so we do not live as those who are without hope. Father, as we move into this season, as we anticipate Christmas and the birth of your son, God, I pray that you work in us, that you shape us and you transform us and you make us more like you. Lord, I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.